Hello everyone and welcome to Infection Prevention in Conversation, our new podcast. Today, we're kicking off with the first in our mini-series of podcasts brought to you by the Journals of the Healthcare Infection Society, the Journal of Hospital Infection and Infection Prevention in Practice. My name is Gemma Windsor. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Infection Prevention in Practice, the gold open access journal of the Healthcare Infection Society. I'm a consultant microbiologist with the UK HSA in the Birmingham Regional Reference Laboratory and also work with the University Hospitals of Birmingham. Today, we're going to be focusing on the joint IPS and HIS joint MRSA guidelines that were published in the Journal of Hospital Infection in October of last year. I'm honoured today to have three fantastic guests with me who are all authors on the guidelines and experts within the field of MRSA and infection prevention more broadly. The first of our guests is Hilary Humphreys, Emeritus Professor of Medical Microbiology and President of the Healthcare Infection Society. I also have Jenny Wilson, Professor of Infection Prevention at University of West London and President of the Infection Prevention Society. And finally, Lisa Butcher, Lead Nurse and Manager for Infection Prevention and Control at Oxford University Hospitals, NHS Foundation Trusts and Vice President of the Infection Prevention Society. Thank you so much for all joining me today. Um, it's a very exciting uh, prospect, a little nerve-wracking for me as well, but we'll kick off. Um, so we're going to talk about the MRSA guidelines today, the newly NICE accredited guidelines from the Healthcare Infection Society and IPS. So what I was hoping we could do to kick off, if you don't mind, is perhaps you could give listeners a bit of an introduction of how and when in your career you first became sort of acquainted with MRSA, how you became so intimately acquainted with MRSA, and then how you found yourself as authors and national and international experts on MRSA um, and and authors in the guidelines. So perhaps, Hilary, if you could tell us a little bit about that first, please. Thank you. Thank you, Gemma. Well, I suppose uh, I first became aware of uh, MRSA in, I guess, the late 80s when it was emerging as a significant clinical problem in the UK and Ireland. And then to my association, early membership of what was then the Hospital Infection Society, got to know various people involved in guidelines. And I got involved in the development of guidelines from the 1990s onwards. In parallel with that, I was also involved in research in various aspects of healthcare associated infection, including you know, the epidemiology of MRSA, and that tied in well with um, guideline development over the years. And, uh, you know, my association with the HIS has continued in my current role as president and involved involvement in the working group. So I think that's a kind of a, a summary of where I've come on this and maybe the road on which I've learned many things. And Jenny? Thank you, Gemma. Yes, uh, I think Hillary and I are giving away our age here because um, I too started to encounter MRSA back in the 1980s as a baby infection control nurse. And, and actually, it, it was interesting to reflect on that time because really prior to the 80s, it wasn't really an issue um, for those of us working in infection control, but it really did become one. And I really remember a major outbreak we had where we managed to seed MRSA from one patient in ITU to about a dozen wards across a sort of major teaching hospital in London. Um, And that really illustrated what was to become a really major problem. Um, Subsequently, of course, I worked for, well, when I started it, the PHLS, um, subsequently became HBA, PHE, um, where I was actively involved in developing a lot of the surveillance systems and really there at the cutting edge of the of the mandatory surveillance systems that we started. And and I think 
that was a really powerful experience too because it showed that it was preventable. You could prevent transmission and you could reduce rates of MRSA. And I think prior to that, we really hadn't believed that was possible. In terms of guidelines, uh, I wasn't on the previous guideline for MRSA, but have come to it really from my experience in developing the EPIC guidelines for prevention of HCI in acute care settings. So a passionate believer in systematic evidence review to inform practice. Thank you. And Lisa? Well, I can't claim to have any of that experience, I'm afraid. So for me, you know, up until 2008, I, I worked on the wards. I was a staff nurse or a ward sister. And and it's really weird thinking about listening to Hillary and Jenny. I had a completely different experience of MRSA in those early days. And I think as a ward nurse, I don't even remember people talking about MRSA, which is which is really at odds with what Hillary and, and Jenny are saying. And um, and we, I, I knew about it, but I didn't know about it, if you, if you know what I mean. And I don't remember ever having to, to deal with outbreaks. And that might have just passed me by. And, um, you know, again, something that we weren't really focusing on, which is, is of concern, clearly. Um, and then in 2008, I, I got a job in infection prevention and control. So obviously start to learn more about it. But at that time, of course, you were coming out the other side of, of the MRSA. So again, I don't remember so much about it other than rushing around because my manager told me that everybody in ED had to be screened. So I was down there with swabs trying to screen people for MRSA. Um, and I've become involved in these guidelines through Jenny, actually, who said, come on, Lisa, come and do some guideline writing um and and so this has been my first experience of writing guidelines at at a national level so it's been very interesting how did you find it lisa uh well i I think i'd still describe myself as a novice and i have done the his um guideline writing course uh, and i guess like everything the more you do it the better better you get and when you've got great people like jenny and hillary and the rest of the team um it's you feel very supported and i'd recommend to anybody to get involved in in writing some guidelines Thank you. You've all sort of intimated a little bit um, about the sort of good and bad and the sort of the epidemiology of MRSA in the UK over the last 20, 30 years. I wonder if uh, perhaps you wouldn't mind setting the scene a little bit for any younger listeners or any um, international listeners about what has happened with the epidemiology of MRSA over that time. Perhaps, Jenny, you wouldn't mind just speaking to that just to give people an oversight of that? Yeah, you're asking me to go back into the mists of time now. But um, I think there's several things about the epidemiology of MRSA that are relevant. I think we've certainly seen the emergence of different strains over time. So that incident that I described back in the early 80s of transmission from one case in an ITU, um, that involves strains of, as we used to call it, EMRSA 3 and 4, which predominated in the UK at that time, um, purportedly came from Australia. But actually, by the time we got to the 90s, we'd started to see different strains emerge, particularly the 15s and 16s. And they had quite a different epidemiology. So it was clear that they had a propensity to um, invade invasive devices they were good at getting into lines and causing bloodstream infections and other really invasive infections so in many ways became a much more serious problem because they were making patients much sicker Um, and certainly at that time 
looking from a national surveillance perspective, we were seeing MRSA really taking over as the predominant strain of Staph aureus. It accounted for around 40% of all Staph aureus infections in the early 2000s and was the most common cause, Staph aureus was the most common cause of bloodstream infection at that time. So having 40% of those invasive infections caused by this resistant pathogen was really a, a very significant problem. And that kicked off the national initiatives, which were many and varied. And I think that is also key, that controlling MRSA isn't about one strategy. There's lots of different strategies that are really important. And that's, in a way, why these guidelines are so important. They show us that we really need to keep the eye on the ball and to make sure that we have all those strategies in place that are going to keep MRSA under control. We're now, uh, Hillary's probably got a better handle on it than me, but it's certainly um, well be- below 20% now of, of Staph aureus are, are methicillin resistant. So that's really uh, an indicator of the progress that's been made over the last couple of decades. Hilary, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, Jenny has covered it well in terms of the overall epidemiology. The other thing I think it's worth emphasizing, and to some extent Lisa touched on it earlier, is the sort of the profile of MRSA. You know, previously it was the shock horror superbug. Um, and I suppose with better control and the emergence of other superbugs like CPE, carbapenemase, um, producing enterobacteriales, and of course, clotridioides, divitulae infection, it's kind of been pushed off the scene, even though it's still clinically important for significant numbers of patients. But I think one of the significance of MRSA is that it's been the engine, if you like, that has driven forward infection prevention and control practice and the profile of infection prevention control. And it's helped to highlight the importance of patient safety in terms of preventing infections in hospitals and other healthcare facilities. So although the epidemiology has changed and it's relatively less important than it was, I think it has been very significant in overall, in overall terms in terms of what it's managed to help us achieve. I think there's a couple of really interesting points that um, I was thinking about while you were talking then. The first, um, when Jenny was talking about not taking our eye off the ball, and I think that particularly during the pandemic, it's been really easy to lose focus on some of the sort of old enemies um, of IPC, and MRSA being one of them, because so much redeployment of frontline staff, so much um kind of very very high workload with such small resources it's been really really easy for us all to take our eye off the ball and trying to remind people on the front line and colleagues about the basics of IPC not all just COVID related has been really challenging and I think trying to now you know refocus thoughts back on some of those um, issues is going to be really challenging and the other um, was when you were talking about the sort of scare and horror stories of MRSA and I think prior to COVID from my memory, MRSA was the the bug that really made the headlines and really engaged the public's um, sort of fear and really preyed on on that about going into hospital and the, the consequences of going into hospital. And since, you know, between that and COVID, I can't really think of anything that's really caused that. And I think to a certain extent, fear of trial by media was what drove a lot of that. So those are really interesting points. Thank you. The next thing that I was hoping we could maybe talk about was um, sort of this this MRSA guideline is, is NICE accredited and the, the process of producing a guideline to NICE accreditation standards. And I was wondering if perhaps maybe, Hilary, you could start us off, but just talking about if you found any differences and, and any challenges and how you found that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's a much more evidence-based set of guidelines than the previous set of guidelines. There's less opinion um, and it's much more, if the evidence isn't there, then there's no evidence and, and you don't make a recommendation. The other feature, I think, of these guidelines um, is that they're probably less dogmatic than previous guidelines, simply because where the evidence isn't there, we haven't included recommendations, although we do have good practice points. And so, in a sense, scientifically, it's better. But for many infection prevention control practitioners on the ground, they may be a bit disappointed that we're not a little bit more cut and dried or black and white about when we should do things and when we shouldn't do things. But I think, you know, that's that's where we go with more scientifically evidence-based guidelines. And, and you know, that's that's where it takes us. So, Lisa, would you mind perhaps just elaborating a little bit on the differences? Because that was one of the questions that I'd had and some of my colleagues had asked me about what would constitute a good practice point and what would constitute a recommendation and sort of elaborating on the differences between those. I think what Hilary's just said for us is on, on the shop floor, you like it, it does make a difference because it is a bit more pragmatic. So the good practice points will suggest things which don't necessarily have the, the strong evidence behind them but makes sense to us. So I think that's been really helpful for us. And I think one of the examples is around um, the less dogmatic view on isolation, because clearly at, at present, we we have quite a, a, a pull on the isolation facilities we have with COVID. So I think it, I wouldn't say gives us permission, but just allows us to think a little bit more laterally about what, what does really need to go into that side room? Is it an MRSA colonised patient or is it somebody who's, uh, got COVID and coughing and spluttering everywhere. So I think from that point of view, I, I like these new guidelines because they are just a little bit more um, helpful. And I think as, as infection control practitioners, there's nothing worse than reading a guideline and it says further research is needed because that, <laughs> that's just not helpful for us on on dealing with the everyday um, bleeps, calls, questions around how do we manage this MRSA colonised patient. So I think for me, that's the bonus point of these guidelines. I suppose it's a blessing and a curse, depending on the exact situation that you're in, isn't it? It's it's always a no-win situation. We know that with infection prevention control. (laughs) Very true. So um, the next thing that I was hoping to talk about was I I can see that part of the guideline development was a very extensive literature review of further work on on the topic that had been published since 2004. Um, Jenny, I was wondering perhaps if you could talk us through maybe a few of the highlights, some of the studies or some of the findings that you found particularly helpful or relevant when you were writing the new guideline. That's a very big question. The first thing I would say is that one of the one of the key things about systematic evidence reviews, high quality systematic evidence reviews as required by the NICE process is that you have to evaluate the quality of the evidence. And so often practitioners will be confused because they'll say, oh, well, I've read a paper that, you know, definitively said this worked or that worked. And, you know, why haven't you cited that? And why haven't you sort of made your recommendation based on that paper? But Of course, all studies are not of the same quality and many study designs used in infection control are what we would call before and after studies. It's the nature of the beast. Often we're dealing with situations where we've got to try and put in controls or measures ad hoc in order to deal with the problem. And so we don't have control groups. It's not really a planned study design. And the trouble with those sorts of designs is they're really vulnerable to bias and confounding. So other things have caused that result, not the particular intervention or strategy that was 
purportedly being tested. So this is always a big challenge in assimilating that evidence, sifting through it, assigning a level of reliability to the results that you see. And that's important to understand when you see the answers that we get as a result. And it's very important that we do that because if we don't do that, what we end up is with is very dogmatic rules, which actually, as Lisa has really nicely illustrated, actually aren't always really helpful in practice and, in fact, are very harmful both for the patients concerned, but also we have to remember that infection control isn't about one organism, as Lisa nicely illustrated. It's a balance to be made between lots of managing lots of different organisms. And as I often say about infection control, it's never black and white. It's always a shade of grey. And so by managing the evidence in this way, we're able to come up with those sort of pragmatic solutions based on the best possible evidence and, and really discounting evidence that is so um, biased that it, it could actually result in, in, in the wrong conclusions being drawn from it. Now, you mentioned, you, you said about one paper, and actually I think the paper that had the most powerful effect on me is a paper by Beerman published in 2018 It was included in the guidelines, essentially because of a question about contact precautions. But actually, if you look at the detail of that paper, I think it tells us a huge amount more about control of MRSA, because what it actually shows is that it was an interrupted time series and it was conducted over a long period. And they introduced a whole series of interventions over that time frame, one of which was removing contact precautions to see if that had any impact on transmission of MRSA which it didn't. It didn't increase transmission. But actually, it's the earlier work that they did that I think is so interesting because they put in place a lot of strategies that sort of aligned, I guess, with some of the things we did with the MRSA reduction program in in the UK, which was improving the care of lines, improving the care of urine catheters, um, using chlorhexidine washing to reduce colonization and carriage. And actually, all those interventions had a really marked effect on the prevention of transmission of MRSA. So that illustrates to us that sometimes the things that we think are really important are not actually the most important thing. It's the basic care, um, particularly of those devices that are so vulnerable to, to the introduction of infection that are really important. The other little nuance about that paper is that when they discontinued um, using contact precautions, they actually reduced the number of the the rate of invasive device-related infections significantly. And that perhaps indicates to us that contact precautions isn't really the panacea that we see it to be because people tend to overuse protective clothing. And maybe what they're doing is actually transferring the MRSA from the skin of the patient and putting it into the invasive device while they're in contact precautions. So they may prevent transmission to other patients, although that's not what Beerman suggested, but perhaps what contact precautions do is increase the risk of invasive infection in those patients who are subjected to them. So I definitely recommend a good look at Beerman. It's got some little nuggets in there. Yeah, to take up on that from Jenny, I mean, I you know, there, there wasn't so much one paper, but a series of paper in different areas that I thought were interesting. One was the extent of screening, you know. So you'd imagine that the more screening you do, the better it would be. But in fact, as we, as we found with universal screening, 
it didn't actually um, make as much difference as we thought because we weren't able to act as quickly. And similarly, on whether we used uh, conventional culture systems or molecular tests, unless, again, you can act on the results very quickly, they, they don't necessarily um, have a huge impact. And then the whole area of the new technologies in terms of decontamination, ultraviolet light and hydrogen peroxide technology. And I think this emphasizes one of the difficulties in the study designs of many of these is that infection prevention and control is multifaceted. There isn't one thing only that you do. So to pick out one aspect of it and try to show that it it does or does not make a difference is truly challenging, particularly in an ethical format. So we were doing um, a study a number of years ago looking at um, more extensive screening of patients than would otherwise normally be the case. But we came to a kind of an ethical issue about whether or not we we could or should uh, impart those results to the infection prevention control team so that they could... um, obviously no earlier than would otherwise be the case and take measures. And we felt we had an ethical responsibility to share that data with the infection prevention control team and indeed with the patients, given that we had information about our carriage. Now, that was the right thing to do. But scientifically, of course, it it kind of, if you like, made the scientific study difficult because we were already having, if you like, an intervention in, in simply an observational part of the study. So I think the studies that are carried out in many of the areas are far from perfect. They're complex. And I think it's true that we need sort of more systematic studies with better designs if we want to show what one particular intervention does. And even then, it may be very difficult to do so. And sometimes it makes sense to include some of those measures, even if we can't definitively prove that they do make a difference. You touched on then something that I've been thinking about that is covered in the guideline, which is the laboratory method for screening for MRSA. And the the guidance suggests that PCR or all culture methods are appropriate and that culture methods should be maintained. I've been wondering, given that there are going to be a lot of molecular test legacy kind of left within labs, to, you know, as the, as the pandemic winds down over the next few years, and I've wondered whether, you know, there are going to be microbiologists up and down the country or infection specialists wondering about how best to now use this newly procured molecular technology in their lab and whether whether people will be wondering whether to, to, to kind of delve into more molecular screening for MRSA rather than conventional culture methods. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a good point in terms of, you know, what we've learned during the pandemic and in terms of the increased use of molecular testing. You know, whether that will translate into a replacement of, of conventional means will depend on various issues, I think. Number one, on the laboratories and the staffing and the urgency of a result. Where it isn't urgent to have a result, you know, your conventional methods are probably fine. So your planned admissions who are going to come in you know, a week or two before hospital, I'm not so sure that it's so critical there. Um, Secondly, on the other hand, if a patient comes in as an emergency into a critical care area, you might like to want to know whether they have MRSA or not. And, you know, we were involved in a study and looked at, you know, a small study looking at aspects of that and certainly can release patient beds more quickly. So if a patient comes in in a risk group for MRSA or previous MRSA and you do a molecular test and it's negative, then you know you can basically manage that patient on an open ward. Um, so I think it's going to be very selective. Um, I think what may drive that as much as anything else is reorganization and restructuring in laboratories. So where you've got more centralization of laboratories and where it may simply be easier to replace culture with molecular techniques, then that may be the case. However, you know, um, just to remind ourselves that, of course, culture has benefits in terms of you have an isolate, you can sequence the isolate, you can look for resistant determinants. That's theoretically possible with molecular techniques, particularly using whole genome sequencing. But in the reality on the ground for most hospitals, that's not going to be the case. So I think we're probably going to see a sort of a hybrid model uh, over time. And some laboratories may move exclusively to molecular tests. But I think it's very difficult to be dogmatic or to be black and white about it. 
I've only worked in one lab that used molecular um, screening for P- for MRSA, um, and they cultured you know concurrently with that. And the, the problem was when we had discrepant results. You know, oh, well, the, the PCR was positive, but we've actually never cultured that organism, or vice versa, and the PCR, and that did throw up some issues around. You know, that 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 was quite a difficult concept to con- to explain to some clinicians. So um, I think how molecular screening is brought in would have to be something that was kind of very carefully considered and how those discrepancies could be managed. OK, so um, the next um, sort of talking point that I wanted to, to speak a little bit about was um, the term suppression for MRSA um, carriage, which is which is um, used in the guideline. Um, how would you say this really differs from decolonization, please? Um, Jenny, would you mind um, opening up about this one, just how we could explain that to colleagues if, if this is the terminology that we're going to be moving to? Yeah, it's, it interests me that there's such a lot of debate about this because, I mean, having worked with MRSA for 40-odd years, I think we always knew that, if you attempt to decolonize somebody, clearly you're decolonizing them at that particular moment in time, but there's always a risk that it will come back. And the nature of the patients that we tend to see with MRSA means that they tend to be older or have underlying health conditions. That means they will be exposed to repeat courses of antibiotics. And as with any other resistant organism, the, the genetic information remains in a small number of cells. And as soon as you give it the opportunity to survive better than its mates, then it's clearly going to regrow. So, you know, suppression, for, the, for as far as the patient's concerned, I think decolonization is important because for them, they need to be able to feel that the organism is gone to all intents and purposes. They're not going to present a risk to their family. But from a healthcare perspective, it's about recognising that um, it did go, it was decolonised, but you've always got to have a high suspicion that it may come back again. Uh, Hillary's probably got a much more um, scientific perspective on the, the concept of suppression versus colonization, decolonisation. Um, well, I think, I think it's a more accurate term, actually, because if you think about it, in our laboratory, and I'm sure this is true of others, we... We never say no MRSA detected. We, we, you know, we say not, we say not detected, which means that we weren't able to detect it. Now, why might that be the case? It might be because the specimen wasn't very good. It might be because there's uh, no MRSA there or there's too, too few MRSAs to, for the limit of detection. Or it might be because the patient is on anti- antibiotics. So it's a much more accurate term, um, I think. And it, it also re- it allows the possibility that it may come back for all the reasons we know, such as hospitalization, exposure to broad spectrum antibiotics, um, and so on and so forth. And, and I think while it's perhaps in some ways not as definitive as a patient might like, or indeed as healthcare colleagues might like, in the sense that we're, we're not saying not there, negative, again, it's just all issue of black and white. Infection prevention control is not black and white, as Jenny said earlier, it's shades of gray. This is another example where it, it's not present, we're not able to detect it, but it, it may arrive back. And the kind of concept of decolonization sounds, you know, could either be interpreted in an imperial sense or maybe in a sort of slightly personal way. I'm colonized with something, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm unclean. So I think suppression is a, is a more accurate term and it's, it's probably a more, a more pleasant term for the patient, I think. Just add in there, I think, yeah, it's interesting because Hillary's saying about decolonization, I, I did look up the dictionary definition of it and that's the first one that came up but but for us as ward our ward nurses and infection control staff I think we try to explain to to the, the ward nurses that it's 
what the you know because it used to be called decontamination i think as well we used to decontaminate patients and then we became a bit more polite about it in decolonization but again it's what does it actually mean to our ward nurses and i don't think they put a label on these things they don't think of it as decolonization or suppression you know one of the most common questions we get is once we've um decolonize the patient when can they come out of isolation how often do we have to re-swab them so again it's, it's about that education of our ward nurses and patients about it's about not necessarily removing all of the mrsa as both jenny and hillary have said is about trying to reduce that bacterial load on that patient before they go to theatre, for example. It's that side of thing that we need to explain to our staff and to our patients rather than the difference between decolonisation and suppression as a, as, a, as a title, if you like. You may have planned questions uh, to ask some questions about this, Gemma, but on page 29 of the guidance, I think there's a really important paragraph that we very often overlook when we're sort of focusing on the science, if you like, of MRSA. And this is evidence around the patient's experience of, of being isolated and of understanding MRSA. And it says that the study suggests that patients had a poor understanding of the reason for their isolation and were confused about the need and variation in the use of PPE. This confusion led to feelings of anger and frustration towards the healthcare staff and the institution. And so... It's very easy for us to think, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what we call it and it doesn't really matter whether we're isolating somebody or not. But actually that captures the experience for the patient. And as Lisa says, often the staff are not really aware of the nuances about MRSA. They don't really understand themselves why sometimes we say isolate, other times we don't. And I think what that tells us from the guidance is that we need to need to be much more proactive in communicating to patients and to staff so that staff have a much better understanding and can help their patients manage that that so much better the, that that experience so much better building on that jenny i think that's that's why um infection prevention control nurses quite often like to be the ones to go and talk to the patients about a new diagnosis of MRSA because we know the message that ward staff sometimes give isn't the same message as we we would give so it's important for us to be the ones to go and discuss it with the patient and the relatives to explain what it actually means and what the implications are for them. Thank you. One of the next things I was hoping we could maybe talk a little bit about is staff screening. In my experience, this is a, an area of great anxiety for infection control practitioners. It's something that you're often asked about by senior members of your own trust during an outbreak or a cluster of MRSA cases or transmission events on a ward. And I think it's something that you can often come under pressure to perform. The, the guidelines um, do mention staff screening um, and they can um, offer some support to IPC teams. Can you speak a little bit, Lisa, on how you think the guidelines can support IPC teams around making these really what I find to be quite tricky decisions? I think you're absolutely right. And I think it it also relates back to what Jenny was saying about patients that for staff, if they are, um, if they're colonized with MRSA and then they're found to be the source of an outbreak, it's, it's really quite unnerving and and a stigma for, for these members of staff. So, so we have, in my knowledge, not ever screened for, for screened staff during, during an outbreak for, for those reasons. Obviously we have staff that go to occupational health who are found to be colonized. And you're right. We often get those questions back about 
where can they work where can they go and these this member of staff feels particularly isolated and um, unwelcome so it's it's a um, quite a stressful time for our members of staff um, so yeah I think the, the guidelines are helpful in in helping us make those decisions and again it's an occupational health decision really not an infection control nurse team decision yeah, a, a difficult canard, I think, that has been present throughout all of the MRSA issue. And, you know, looking at it from a research point of view and an outbreak management point of view, from a research point of view, if you look at it purely from the scientific point of view, if you go looking for MRSA and staff, you will find it. Um, but what does it mean, particularly if those staff have good standards of professional practice? And then the other issue is, um, what do you do when you decide to screen? So, Recently, uh, well, in the last couple of years, we had an an outbreak of mupirocin-resistant MRSA in a vascular surgical ward, and we had difficulty controlling it, and we we wanted to we wanted to do some staff screening as as is reasonable when you've tried other all other measures but in fact the uptake was not great because understandably people said well if you find that i'm mrsa positive and i've got mupirocin resistant how am i going to be decolonized and what impact that's going to have on my professional practice a, a very understandable question and and a very difficult question to ask and i think when you're looking at staff screening you've got to say to yourself as infection prevention control practitioners we are very much dependent on the cooperation and engagement and buy-in from colleagues right across the professional spectrum. And so when and if we ask for something that is a difficult ask, um, and not only may we not get it, but we may undermine their confidence in us and their cooperation in other areas. So there's a bit of sort of balancing to be done here in terms of trying to sort of encourage people to do all the other measures. And really, I think staff screening is way down the list. And when you do do it, it has to be clearly laid out how it's going to be done, who it's going to be done by, what's going to happen with the results, negative or positive. And that not only involves uh, infection prevention control practitioners, but also occupational health and others. So it's a very sensitive area. And my experience over the years is that often there are lots of other things you can do that are going to be more effective before you go down the staff screening route. Thank you. And I think the same question really about environmental screening, it's something that I find um, non-infection control practitioners are very quick to try and offer when you're in meetings and incident meetings but actually you know you have a feeling it's not actually going to offer much to this situation do you have any tips Lisa for sort of how you manage to communicate that to colleagues yeah I, I think well we have done it but not necessarily for MRSA for for example when we had a candida aurus outbreak Um, We did um, do some environmental screening because we really were stuck on where the source of this may be. And and like Hilary says, yeah, we found we found it. Yeah, we did find it. We we found it on a number of surfaces. And then we also found what we think was the root cause of it, which was um, axilla temperature probes that were broken. And you couldn't clean anymore. They were the plastic had shredded, so they couldn't be um, decontaminated effectively. So it did it did work for us in that situation and we've also looked um when we've had outbreaks of esbl for example in the neonatal unit and we we have found it. i've no experience of doing environmental screening for mrsa and i expect hillary and, and jenny have but it, it has proved useful for us in those situations um yeah i mean first of all i, I have to declare a, an interest i'm interested in environmental sampling as a research tool um, as a kind of a outbreak management tool or routine tool, I'm, I'm much less sceptical about it for the reasons that Lisa have said. And I, throughout my career, people in various parts of the hospital have come up and said, well, let's, let's sample A or B in the environment, whether it be theater, people in theatres or estates. And I'm always asked the question, OK, you're going to sample an area 
And what are you going to do with the results, particularly if the results are not what you expected? Because that's a real challenge. If Once you sample and if you find it there, then you have to have a plan as to what to do. And if you don't have a plan, then you really are in a difficult situation. So I, I don't think there's a great deal of role for MRSA in the environment. You will find it in the environment because it's simply shed on skin scales. Um, the, so the issue really is, I think, about environmental decontamination and markers of environmental decontamination. Yes, as a research tool, it's very interesting to trace spread and particularly with whole genome sequencing. And there's some excellent studies doing that. But as a, a routine tool, no. As an outbreak, yes. But as I said, probably it's just simply telling you that environmental decontamination is not what it should be. And, and I would just say that um, people like to reach for magic solutions for cleaning the environment, which usually involves spraying stuff in it um, or irradiating it. But the reality is none of those things are going to work if you don't clean it, physically clean it. And so the answer is always good physical cleaning. Um, and I, I think you were, you were mentioning before about how there were some shock headlines from back from the 80s. And I, I used to use one on a slide and it said, mop of death. Um, it was because <laughs> some microbiologist was going around sampling mops. In someone being in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And, um, and it was, of course, they recovered MRSA from it. And it was at the time when MRSA hit the papers all the time. And, um, but it, in a sense, what that illustrates and what happened, of course, was we suddenly realised that actually cleaning needed to be so much better. In those days, cleaners would have a mop and it would sit in a bucket um, for weeks uh, of filthy water. But now, of course, we have much better systems for ensuring that cleaning is at a better standard. It's never perfect. And I am the first to say that we should invest far more in our cleaners um, and the resources that we have for cleaning. But you're never going to solve the environment problem unless you've got good cleaning services. And you don't really need to look for MRSA to tell you whether your cleaning's good or not. And if you want to fix MRSA in the environment, you've got to have good cleaning. Um, I suppose um, environmental decontamination stands with good good standards of housekeeping. Let's leave it as simple as that. And that's issues of human behavior and motivation, which are challenging in all areas of infection prevention and control. Um, and again, uh, you know, there are new technologies, one of which cold plasma. I'm, in, I'm interested in myself, but all of these are not as a replacement for routine hospital hygiene. They are in addition to. But the challenge is, is that if you have uh, good routine hospital hygiene, the number of bacteria or viruses are going to be very small. So scientifically show a real difference between good environmental decontamination through routine methods and a, be- a benefit from new technologies, whatever they may be, is going to be challenging. And the reason for this is that you can show in the laboratory with lots of these technologies that you will either remove all of the bacteria or you will reduce by a log of four to five. But in the environment, the amounts of bacteria present are, are probably much less than in, in uh, clinical samples such as sputum or blood culture. So you may be talking about trying to reduce from 10 to the three to 10 to the one or less. And that's technically and statistically much more difficult. So I think that's the real challenge for uh, a lot of these new technologies. And I think it really starts with good hygiene, good professional practice, monitoring that audit feedback and the motivation of our cleaning operatives and valuing them as part of the infection prevention control team. I think of it a little bit like the Sky Cycle team and how they showed incremental benefit with each tiny little benefit and bringing that bundle of benefits together has an impact, but to measure each individual benefit, like you say, is nigh on impossible. 
So to kind of start to wrap it up a little bit, what I was hoping we could maybe focus on is um, what your wish list would be for areas of further research, perhaps some of the knowledge gaps um, you became aware of. Well, I mean, I I think I've mentioned uh, the Beerman paper, um, which I think was really good, but I think we need far more studies like that, that that are well-designed, but actually help us understand some of those, as you said, incremental things that make a difference. And um, just having one paper uh, that starts to show that is never really enough. So I think more papers that look at the the range of interventions that will will help us prevent MRSA transmission and and perhaps some better understanding of the nuances about it to help support some of that decision making locally so which type of MRSA patients really present a risk in terms of transmission um, because they present in many forms and their level of colonization may be very different and it would really help to understand where we need to prioritize um, those control measures. Thank you. Hilary? I would I would identify three areas. First of all, the guidelines are focused on acute hospitals, and I think we need to know a little bit more about the importance and relevance, if it indeed is important outside acute healthcare, to try and provide guidance for those working in community practices. Um, the second area would be in decolonization. Um, I think I mentioned earlier issues of mupirocin resistance. And um, while most of the time we can decolonize or attempt to suppress, to use a more correct term, um, with conventional methods such as mupirocin and chlorhexidine, uh, we need to be aware that there is mupirocin resistance and we may see chlorhexidine resistance. And it may be that natural products like honey or tea tree oil may be actually of some use, although the studies don't confirm that because of the difficulty of doing good studies. And the challenges with compounds like that is, of course, there's no patent, so there's no commercial interest in this. And so it's very difficult to get funding to do it. And the final area, I think, would be the evolving public perceptions of MRSA and has it probably has changed in the context of not only CPE and clostridioides difficile, but of course, COVID-19 and whether or not the kind of scare concept and fear that patients have about MRSA is the same or not compared to previous. And if so, then we do need to modify our education and our communication packages to make sure that we're communicating you know, in an appropriate way in, in, a, in a new era, as it were, for infection prevention control. Thank you. And Lisa? One of the things that fascinates me is antimicrobial surfaces. So I'd like to know more about that and understand what the role is going forward. And I was just thinking about what are the questions that the ward staff always ask us and that we don't necessarily have the answers for? So things like um, how many negative screens do you have to have before you are MRSA negative? And and that's, you know, the favourite one. Mm -hmm. How far apart do you have to take those screens? How... um, how often should we be decolonizing or suppressing patients? So for me, it's, it's about what the wards are asking for, the questions I'd like us to, to focus on. There might not be anything out there to help us, of course, but um, <laughs> but they're, they're the interests for me. Could I just add one final comment, yes, which is please, the, please. the involvement of um, patients and lay individuals on the guidance? Yes, of course. So um, I think this has been a welcome but long overdue involvement. And I must uh, confess to a certain guilt that in previous guidelines I was working with, that was um, conspicuous by its absence, because after all, it's about patients and the public, uh, not so much about us. And, And also because of the benefit it brings. And this was brought home to me many, many years ago when I was sitting on an ethics committee where we had lay individuals. And this was my first experience. And a number of 
the great and the good, as it were, were discussing this ethical dilemma about whether it was right to use drug A or B to treat condition Y. And so we tossed this around for a while. And then the chairman went to the layperson and asked her what she thought. And she said, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with whether you use A or B. But my issue with this is that I don't understand the information leaflet. And that brought home to me um, the fact that often we get stuck in minutiae without actually realizing what the bigger picture is. And not only um, does the delay in voice or the patient bring uh, a perspective to it that we badly need, but often, particularly if they're shrewd and motivated individuals, they can see the wood for the trees. We get stuck in the minutiae in the trees and we don't see the bigger picture. So I think this is uh, very welcome. I think it's long overdue and um, we need greater involvement, not only in the involvement, but also perhaps in the education and the promulgation of the guidelines so that they're more effective than they have been in the past, perhaps. Well said. That was an excellent addition. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I'd just like to thank you all very much for taking your time to be the the guests for the inaugural podcast for the Society. Um, it's really, really appreciated. Um, thank you very, very much. Thank you very much to the guests on the podcast this week. If you want to find out more about how to get involved with the Healthcare Infection Society or specifically about guideline writing courses that Lisa mentioned, which will be running again this autumn, please check out our website at his.org.uk. For updates about the podcast or his journals and the society more broadly, please follow us on Twitter at JHI Editor or at IPIP underscore open. Finally, please support us by liking and subscribing to Infection Prevention in Conversation via your usual podcast channels. Please join us again next time when I'll be talking to the JHI editors Nick Mahida and Jim Gray about their pick of the papers from 2021.